The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, and welcome to today's Barron's Live. I'm Abby Schultz, a senior writer at Barron's Penta, and I'm here today with Ashley Woods, head of philanthropy at Ascent Private Capital Management, which is the ultra-high net worth arm of U.S. Bank. We're going to talk about creating strategies for giving and top issues in philanthropy today. And before I get started, just a reminder to write in any questions you have for Ashley, and I'll try to get to them before our time is up. So, Ashley, thank you. It's great to have you here today. Thanks, Abby. Happy to be here. Thank you. So you work with individuals and families who have uh, a lot of capacity to give generously to nonprofits. What are some of the, the biggest challenges for philanthropists who are deciding how to give effectively? Sure. So really, regardless of which stage that philanthropists find themselves or their family, we see three, really two trends driving our ultra high net worth philanthropy that is generational business and asset transfer and with creating successful multi-generational foundations. Um, Regarding the first, it's really about being prepared for liquidity events. An emerging issue for many of our families is aligning their philanthropic goals with a pending liquidity event. Uh, Say you've got a generational wealth transfer or you're exiting from a business Families are faced with substantial new assets being directed to the family foundation. As you know, this happens quickly. So baking in a charitable strategy into these life events is really important. Um, Major capital infusions like this really become a challenge if you're not prepared. As you can imagine, managing a $5 million foundation is very different from overseeing one with 100 million. So the Ascent team is currently, we're working with a few clients facing this and we really circle around those clients to provide that strategic philanthropic advice to them to kind of scale up that foundation for what would be an increase in charitable assets and activities. Um, The second uh, real challenge we see is creating that successful multi-generational family foundation. Leaving a legacy and engaging with family are some of the top reasons our clients embrace philanthropy. Uh, Many families want guidance and best practices on how to create a successful multi-generational foundation and, you know, trying to figure out how to engage their rising gen. We know that millennials and subsequent generations are doing philanthropy differently. Um, Ascent has been years ahead of the wealth management curve with our differentiated approach. At Ascent, wealth, wealth really isn't just about financial re- resources. It's about that human and intellectual capital. So we bring to bear resources and subject matter experts, such as wealth managers. We have a team of leadership coaches. Our advisors have estate, tax, investment, banking, and credit experience. And we do the specialized work under a larger umbrella of Ascent which has that private banking arm and investment consulting arm and the suite of family office services. This is important because a, excuse me, a multidisciplinary approach makes these decisions or plans more thoroughly vetted when, and then we can position our clients for those better outcomes. 
You know, so if a family's looking into succession planning across a family enterprise or a family foundation, this multidisciplinary approach with our relationship team allows us to create meaningful ways to engage the next generation. Um, we've really found that creating this holistic relationship across that spectrum of services creates an accrual of efficiencies. Um, we can serve a small number of our clients and provide tools then that provide a way for those heirs to get prepared for future roles in that multi-generational family foundation. And we can create some ways to explore and align those philanthropic passions with aspects such as investments and wealth planning. Right, so integrating everything really. Absolutely, uh, tonight. So, uh, it seems like, so it's interesting you're talking about multi-generational um, approaches and really thinking uh, that's what you really have to think about with, with families of, of, of great wealth. But it, it seems like there's, there's, a diff, there's a couple different approaches that, that you can set up, and probably more than a couple, but you could set up a, a foundation, uh, a private foundation, um, like a Ford Foundation or Rockefeller Foundation to name some big ones, but there's of course, you know, many, many smaller ones. Um, and, or you could set up a, a, a process, I suppose, for giving away most of your money sooner, like while, while, while you're still alive. And um, it's an approach that seems to be encouraged in part by the giving pledge. That was, you know, that's Bill and M Gates and Melinda French Gates and Warren Buffett's um, they started it rather at the giving pledge and that's to encourage very wealthy people to give away the majority of their wealth while they're alive or, or soon after. And I'm wondering what, um, you know, what, how you work rather with clients to think about their approach, like, and, and do, and is there a preferred approach that you have found among your clients, whether it's setting up a big foundation or giving, trying to find a way to give it away sooner? Yeah, I mean, what you, I think what you're really getting to is um, structuring and, you know, will you give into perpetuity or if you're going to give while you're alive. Um, most philanthropists and most of our clients are not giving on the same scale as Mackenzie Scott, um, but mm. there are a few key takeaways to her approach, all of which are used in a sense approach to philanthropic impact. Um, but I'm glad you brought this up. Giving Horizon is a key decision that must be addressed early on as part of philanthropic planning. Uh, when you look specifically at Giving Horizons, meaning sunsetting a foundation versus allowing a foundation to exist into perpetuity, a few critical decision points need to be explored. Um, we look at giving capital, you know, what kind of assets are being deployed for the philanthropic funding. We look at investment strategy, you know, a sound strategy for capital preservation is gonna be important when you're structuring for perpetuity versus having assets that are immediately deployable if you're trying to you know, spin, spin that foundation down. Um, we look at mission and vision. Are you giving purely for charitable tax purposes or are you investing long-term in systems change? And then you know, family philanthropy, is there a desire to, to leverage this into perpetuity for legacy purposes? Um, or, or is this, you know, being inherited by a rising generation that has, as we know, more desire to, to get this money out and, and into the hands of nonprofits? Um, Mackenzie Scott, she's inspirational. 
she really demonstrates what success looks like when you couple research with trust-based philanthropy, with a you know trust-based philanthropic strategy. Um, she shows the truest sense of philanthropy, you know, a love of humanity. She gives to those in frontline positions that are seeing the day-to-day costs of operating a nonprofit, you know, keeping the lights on, paying salaries. Inflation has been a predatory beast to nonprofits, and sometimes we want to look so far ahead to solve major systemic issues when the real issue is whether your local nonprofit, you know, can even afford to keep its monthly overhead costs under under wraps. So, you know, if a philanthropist is not ready to engage in Scott's more trust-based giving model, I think we need philanthropists more closely tied to the actual realities of nonprofit budgets so that they understand the funding needs. And, you know, Scott's approach, she seems to accomplish this. Um, I, I think it might be helpful to break break this down a little bit just for our listeners about um, what Mackenzie Scott's approach has been. I mean, she Mackenzie Scott, of course, is a writer, philanthropist. She was a, um, she was married earlier to Jeff Bezos, but which is really where her fortune came from, and she's been giving very impactful, unrestricted grants. Um, and you use the phrase trust-based philanthropy. It's really, and maybe you could define that for us a little bit. I, I was about to, but I think you probably could do it more effectively. Um, so I, I, I think that might be helpful to understand. And I'm also wondering if you think her approach and how she's going about this is is rippling through other philanthropists and, and shifting how they're looking at giving. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is. Um, you know, when I think about trust-based philanthropy, the real design in that is it puts the onus of responsibility on the philanthropist, on that funder. And it really is, you know, and under that trust-based model, a philanthropist's job to get to know the nonprofits that they fund. It's not the grantee's job, you know, to be proving themselves to the grant maker. That trust-based model allows the nonprofits that they partner with to be freed up, to be able to focus on their work and not on the grant maker. And that's everything from, you know, grant applications all the way to grant reporting. And um, the other aspect of that, which if you want me to touch on a bit is that, you know, unrestricted gifting model that, that, you know, Scott has deployed. Yeah. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. unrestricted gifts, they really allow nonprofits to spend funds any way they believe is appropriate to further their mission. So you align that trust-based funding approach um, with with those, you know, kind of trust-based models. It's pretty powerful, multi-year, especially multi-year gifting. Um, surprising to me, you know, you really can put some limitations on unrestricted gifts. You know, a funder might, for example, designate money for operating expenses. So it could be an unrestricted grant that maybe helps to pay their their lease payments on a building or maybe to support leadership development for their staff. Um, And I've I've been seeing some statistics lately put out by the Center for um, Effective Philanthropy. It was interesting. They estimated that only about 20% of U.S. funding for nonprofits has any degree of flexibility. Um, So it'll be interesting to see over the next few years as we see more funders moving to this trust-based, you know, unrestricted model, if we see those numbers change. Um, If you want, I can talk about some of the pros and cons of unrestricted gifts if you want me to go a little bit more in depth around that. Yeah, I was was, 
um, I was going to ask about how you advise clients and, and what are, you know, and I imagine part of that is weighing the pros and cons and, you know, what do you, what do you need to weigh before you are gifting unrestricted? Um, yeah, you know, there are pros and cons to unrestricted gifts. Um, as I mentioned kind of a bit before, nonprofits need operational unrestricted support. Um, they're facing a growing need right now for operational support due to, you know, really a series of factors that have negatively impacted the nonprofit sector of late. Um, you know, nonprofits, as you know, because you're within this realm, they're struggling right now to retain qualified fundraisers and staff. So making investments, unrestricted investments in infrastructure to support salaries is really important. Um, Inflation has driven up the cost of doing business. Nonprofits are businesses, so their costs are also up. And then, um, you know, there's been record high interest rates and some volatility in the markets. And we're seeing that that's depressing charitable giving. Um, you know, more leadership donors and ultra high net worth donors are, are really in a place right now where they can infuse um, much needed funds into charities of choice. Um, during this kind of time, which other kind of charitable giving has been depressed. Um, you know, here's the kind of the con. Restricted gifts are still a favored way to, to make, you know, charitable gifts. Um, there's a psychological element to this. I'm a big fan of, of Dr. Russell James and, and his work. He's done some brain research um, that's uncovered that donors give the most money when the act and experience of giving produces a strong emotion. So um, he's done brain scans, right, to see what is motivating donors. And three of these strongest emotions, according to his research, are empathy, identification, and visualization. And restricted gifts really heighten this emotional response to giving and make that experience of giving more fulfilling. You know, when a funder restricts their gift for a specific purpose, it really deepens their personal life story and the role that giving plays within their life story. And Dr. James's research indicates that donors give because they want to advance their story where they are a hero. You know, and giving is a heroic act by definition. So I think giving a restricted gift enhances that experience for a donor. It also, you know, control comes into play here. Um, restricted gifts can also make measuring impact easier. You know, you give 100 books to a nonprofit um, and you can see 100 books being shared out to, to maybe, you know, a kid's reading program. It's more linear and, and easier to track than an unrestricted gift. Um, you know, that being said, restricted gifts have some downsides. They lock up money um, where other areas of the nonprofit may go underfunded. And, you know, as we kind of talked about before, nonprofits have some real funding needs in, in unrestricted areas. Um, and, and kind of back again to that trust-based philanthropy model, these gifts, of, you know, restricted gifts are often tied to really rigorous reporting obligations. You have intensive grant reports that are somewhat antiquated um, in asking, you know, funders to to report back on money used. And we still have donors that adhere to that system and 
you know, ask grantees to complete, you know, major reports on funding grant results. And, you know, while it's good to track nonprofit usage of funds, these reports pull an already lean nonprofit staff away from core work and they're time consuming and, and, and onerous. So they favor those more well-established nonprofits, you know, that have been given grants consistently over years and that already have an infrastructure in place to tackle it, where, you know, grassroots organizations and newly created nonprofits may not have resources to do that kind of reporting. So if you're taking a more trust-based model to what you're doing, unrestricted gifts are going to be less onerous on your, on your staff. And have some real benefits. It kind of depends, right? Like what the goal of the donor is when they're making their gift. Right. But the but the issue of, of burdensome reporting is is really real. And, and and if you want to have an impact, I could see even if you're giving restricted, maybe that's something you could moderate in some way if if that's something that's of concern because you want your dollars to be used and you want the nonprofits to, to be effective and that could maybe take away from, from their effectiveness. Exactly. Um, that's, that's really one of the first ways when we have a, a family or, you know, an individual donor come to us for some philanthropic advising and they really want to make um, some progress in this space around how do they align their giving um, to be more friendly. This unrestricted multi-year gift is one of the ways we, we, you know, they can start dipping their toe into more advanced uh, strategies for giving and, and then we, you know, we work with grant implementation and programming as an aspect of work we do with our clients and we can help them modify their, their grant proposal process um, to be more uh, nonprofit friendly. Yeah. That's no, that's interesting. And, and, and you've mentioned, we were talking about before we got on the call, your background in working on the nonprofit side. So you can really, in your role as an advisor, you can, it would seem that would be helpful experience to, to share with philanthropists who are, who are weighing these different approaches. Yeah. I mean, myself and various roles, I've been the one filling out those grant reports and, you know, you spend a couple hours a day filling out a five to seven page grant report or I'm out, you know, soliciting donations from from potential sponsors. So um, how, what's the highest and best use of my time for meeting that, from, you know, that organization mission? It's definitely being out there in the world trying to generate support for it rather than filling in boxes of a <laughs> grant report. Right, <laughs> for sure. Um, <laughs> so we recently, uh, the, actually the first time we, we spoke was um, in a discussion about how donors could give effectively to address uh, the, specifically the tragedy of the earthquake and the, and the, the um, excuse me, the kind of the double earthquakes really in Southern Turkey, Northern Syria. And you know, which was a, a huge human and still is an ongoing huge hu human tragedy. Thousands killed, homes destroyed, livelihoods lost. Um, and then, you know, of course, there's other disasters. We have the, the ongoing man-made disaster in Ukraine. And, and I'm wondering, um, when donors are thinking about giving and thinking about giving strategically, how do they look at giving in response to disasters within their overall plan? Is that something that should be thought of in the moment or ahead of time? 
Well, you know, absolutely. If, if disaster grant making is something that a family foundation or individual philanthropist is interested in, um, they need to be carving out a portion of their philanthropic dollars for disaster philanthropy. Um, you know, foundations really play, even, you know, lean funders, right? Like not your major foundations you were talking about earlier, even lean funders play a really essential role in disaster relief and recovery. Um, you know, you can provide immediate relief. There's short-term recovery and then long-term rebuilding. So it kind of depends on what kind of relief the donor is interested in. Some like to focus on one area. Others like to combine their giving for a more holistic response to disaster relief. Um, you know, immediate relief is really right after a disaster happens. Um, you may see foundations pull funds together and, you know, kind of rally together to create funds for food and shelter medical care, um, things like that. Um, and that's a real instant kind of way to respond. Um, then maybe you've carved out a more sustainable disaster grant plan within your foundation, and maybe you're looking at longer-term philanthropic investments, you know, that provide continued health and social services or to um, support clean drinking water, um, rebuilding of shelters, sanitation services, um, you're really looking to support them as survivors. Um, and then we also have donors that look at that long-term rebuilding. I mean, you start thinking about the mental health needs of those that are affected by these disasters and um, strategic investments that need to be made. So it, it really is kind of what aspect of disaster recovery are they interested in and helping, you know, then create that as part of their overall strategic philanthropic plan. Yeah, think, and thinking, thinking ahead a little bit because there's, there are always, there are always natural disasters and there's always like, as you said, the ongoing um, rebuilding after these disasters um, to think about. And, and one thing I learned in writing that story about disaster philanthropy is the existence of re-granting organizations, groups that that are more global in scope and they can take in funds and get them to vetted on the ground nonprofits. Um, can you talk about those a little bit, how they might be effective conduits for disaster giving? Right. Um, so I like to think of this as like intermediate or intermediary organizations. They mm -hmm. um, really support that provision of services um, rather than requiring that donor or that um, foundation itself to provide that. Um, it really ensures that grants and, and those investments made reach those small and mid-sized organizations, and, and they do that vetting, right? So they, they vet those organizations to ensure that, that the, um, the funds are being deployed to the highest and greatest need in light of a disaster. Uh, so one, one issue separate, separate from disaster funding, but one issue here a lot is that donors are more likely to give to big institutions, particularly universities, in addition to like healthcare organizations, arts institutions, before that they 
that they tend to give to those types of institutions before giving to social service causes, to grassroots organizations. And I'm wondering if you are seeing that as well, or do you see that changing as a younger generation of donors um, gets more involved with giving? Yeah, absolutely see that changing as we have this, you know, next generation that's highly focused on impact. Um, now assuming some leadership roles within, you know, family wealth and impact. You know, donor preferences are as unique as the donor. Um, much of organizational preference comes with philanthropic history. So established philanthropists have long histories of giving some generational to organizations, while those newer to philanthropy are discovering charities to support. Um, I recently read an article where nonprofits are working to uncover ways to engage community donor advised funds and philanthropic advisors such as myself to um, you know, orient them around their cause and, and need statements. And I think this is a really good thing. Um, I think any way in which grassroots or smaller organizations can connect with those that have sidelines in defenders is going to start increasing exposure to these smaller grassroots organizations. That's really interesting. Um, so I, I, I do have a, a question from uh, a listener who, sorry, who asked, this is a very uh, specific question, just about the maximum um, in dollars a person could give in a given year and use as a tax deduction. What are the current, and I, not to get into uh, into the weeds too much on tax, <laughs> taxes and philanthropy, but what are some of the basic things that maybe we should, we should know? Sure, so the 2022 standard deduction was um, for charitable contributions was set at 25,900 for joint returns and 12,950 for single individuals and married people who are falling separately, hmm. 19,400 for heads of household. So that's the, um, and then, you know, we can go into different rates. My, my advice when you start getting into the um, weeds around these kind of tax deductions is check with your financial planner, your CPA, look at what assets you have to give um, and then start making decisions based upon your unique financial situation. Um, you know, you and I kind of talked about this too. There's, there's no wrong, I, I like to say there's no wrong way to do philanthropy, um, but there's a smart way to do it. And so tax-wise charitable giving should always be a goal of anyone wanting to make a, a charitable contribution and really identifying assets that are primed for giving. Um, start there, you know, we try to discourage our, our clients from doing checkbook philanthropy. Um, you know, don't just make write checks and, and do gifts that are easy, but really look at those assets that are the most primed for giving and be smart um, about what you're doing with your, with your giving. So that was a great question. And I would say dive deeper than just you know, looking at the numbers. Right. So it, it's not just about the numbers. Like you said, it's not just about check writing, but about, you know, why you're writing the check and, and, and how, and, and it, it within a, within a, a, a broader 
framework. Um, and, and I guess to, to have a specific sort of impact. Um, and one, one question I have is whether the donors that you work with, if they tend to, when they're thinking strategically about philanthropy, when they're thinking about a framework, are they looking at um, focusing, is part of the discussion whether they want to focus on one area or a related set of areas like education, for instance, or, um, you know, maybe it's something to do with social services, uh, the homeless or healthcare or the environment. Are, do, do, or do most donors prefer to broaden their giving and give to various sectors? You know, it, 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 I can't answer that with like one answer because mm. every donor is as unique as the per, you know, as the, they're donating, they're donating as, as unique as they are. Um, you know, I think the priority rather with what focus, you give to where your passion is, right? The true, the, I truly believe that the road to impactful philanthropy begins with the why. Identifying the motivation, driving that investment of time, treasure, and talent really allows a philanthropist to have great clarity of vision, passion, and interest. So when those dimensions come together, philanthropic magic happens. You know, for some, philanthropy is, is just a tax wise planning strategy. Um, for others, becoming a donor is just the beginning. Um, these, of course, are the clients I love to work with. Those are that are, you know, entertaining, entertaining thoughts of their legacy, who are, you know, wanting to focus on impact. And whether you give to one cause area or ten cause areas, you want to be thinking critically about about that, and you want to be discerning. Um, so, you know, there's a well, there's no right or wrong way to do philanthropy, and no right or wrong way to to choose an organization to support. Having a sound charitable giving strategy that you know takes into account tax and economic perspectives um, around you know maybe integrating family that that's the way you want to be doing philanthropy for sure. So, like you said, it's it's uh, it, it's really thinking giving smart, think thinking yeah. ahead. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Well, thank you, Ashley, for sharing your thoughts. And effective philanthropy, this has been very interesting, uh, and I am sure our listeners have lots of takeaways that they can uh, they can use in the future when thinking about giving. And I'd like to ask our listeners to join us again on Monday when Barron Senior Managing Editor Lauren Rublin and Deputy Editor Ben Levison will be speaking with Katie Stockton, who is the founder and managing partner of Fair, Fair Lead Strategies on the outlook for the market and investment opportunities. Thanks, everyone. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.